I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to, uh, I think we'll start with Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. We uh, started uh, uh, speaking last Sunday morning on a subject that we've entitled Jesus our High Priest. <clears throat> now that, uh, that kind of comes as a uh, result of uh, some the scriptures that we've been looking at in the previous weeks about um, spiritual maturity. The Bible says that spiritual maturity is based on growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, speaking of the knowledge of the Son of God, it doesn't just mean to know that Jesus came to the earth as a baby. That seems to be what everybody's focus is on uh, around Christmas time, or at least what the church's focus on is uh, at this time of year. And that's fine. I mean, uh, it's if Jesus hadn't come, he couldn't have done the work that he did. But uh, you know, if you if you remember, if if Christmas is supposed to be Christ's birthday or a, a memorial of Christ's birthday, if you think of people that you celebrate their birthdays, you don't just celebrate the day that they were born; you celebrate their lives. Well, the same thing was true where, uh, where Jesus is concerned. Jesus did many things in his, life, in his life that we need to know about and, and have knowledge of and knowledge of why. Certainly is going to the cross and becoming a sacrifice for our sins is of utmost importance. But the Bible says that that's not the end of the work of Jesus. Jesus' work did not finish when he died on the cross. Redemption was not obtained for us until after he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father. So we not only need to know about Jesus coming to the earth, being born in the manger, we need to know about His life, the revelation of God that He provided for us while He was here, then further, the work that He did for us on the cross, then further, the fact that He was raised from the dead, and then finally, what He's doing for us now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. So this morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus, our High Priest of Mercy. Look with me in Ephesians, I mean, uh, where did I tell you? Hebrews, right, Hebrews chapter 2. Beginning in verse 14, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. In other words, just as much as you and I are flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. Folks, please understand that the Bible says Jesus had a purpose. His purpose was to destroy the power of the devil in your life. To destroy the power of the devil over mankind. Now, if that was true and Jesus finished his work, why is the devil's power not destroyed over mankind? Well, because they don't put themselves in a position to believe what the Bible says and operate according to the rules and, uh, and instructions of the Bible. The power of death, the devil's power was destroyed over your life when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. And there was nothing, please understand, there was nothing the devil could do to stop you from getting saved. At the point where you decided, okay, I'm going to make Jesus the Lord of my life based on something you'd heard uh, that day perhaps or things that you'd heard in the past. Somewhere, some way, you and I came to the realization that I'm going to accept this to be true. You couldn't prove it. All you had was the testimony of others that said that they had done it too. But you couldn't prove it. You couldn't scientifically identify or define here's what and how it happens. You, you don't have it. We just don't have that. There wasn't scientific evidence, but you chose you made a choice. In other words, you directed your will to say, all right, I'm going to, to accept what the Bible says is true. And when you did that, there was nothing, there was no power of the devil, there was no power in the universe that could stop the life of God from breaking spiritual death over you, the breaking the power of spiritual death over you. Well, why would that same principle not work in every other area? When you exercise your will to accept what the Bible says to be true, the power of death can't hold you, whether it's the power of sickness, 
whether it's the power of poverty, whether it's any other, other work of the devil, it can't hold you. So the church sits around moaning and groaning and saying, oh, I don't know why this is happening to me. Well, the Bible tells you why. You and I are held in the bondage of death that Jesus has already broken only by an act of our own will. Now, we may not, we may not recognize that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying people choose to stay in sickness. I'm not saying people choose to stay in poverty. But the fact that they don't choose to accept what the Bible says to be true brings them under the power of sickness and poverty by default. Your computer has a default setting. You don't have to do anything. It's set up a certain way to operate in a certain manner. And if you want that manner to change, you, as an act of your will, have to change it. And sometimes you may have to research out, how do I change this thing? That's why the Bible is given to us. So Jesus took part of the same flesh and blood that he, through death, might destroy him that had the power of, the de- of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. He could have, but he didn't. But what did he take on instead? But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in other words, because of this, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. That's you and me. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor. The word succor means to aid or relieve. In other words, it's another way of saying deliver. He's able to aid you. Well, how would he aid you? By bringing you out. How would he relieve you? By bringing you out. It's another way of saying deliverance. It's talking about deliverance. In that he was tempted himself, He is able to aid or relieve them that are tempted. Now, folks, hold your finger here. We're going to come back to the book of Hebrews. I believe Paul is the writer of the book of Hebrews. I explained that, went into a little bit of detail about that last week. If it wasn't Paul, it was somebody that had the same training that Paul did, which was the same training that the high priest received. Peter certainly couldn't have done that. The Bible says when Peter and John stood before the Jewish council, questioned about the power of God that they ministered, uh, the healing power of God they ministered to the man at the beautiful gate. It said the thing that they recognized, the thing that the council recognized about Peter and John, their outstanding characteristic was that they were ignorant and unlearned men. Well, an ignorant and unlearned man wouldn't write this about the Jewish law. He wouldn't have the understanding of this. If it wasn't Paul, it had to be somebody that had Paul's training. It wouldn't make sense to me why God would bring somebody out of the blue that we know of, nobody else we know of had Paul's training. The same high priestly training that included being able to recite or memorize the whole of the, the law and the prophets. Why would God bring somebody out of the blue that we wouldn't know who they are so that we couldn't identify and judge their, their life by their own teachings? That wouldn't make sense. Some people say it was Timothy. Well, if Timothy, if it was Timothy, Timothy learned it at the hands of Paul. And, in, and, and for me, that doesn't make sense because he calls them brethren. He calls them brethren according to the flesh, not just spiritual brethren. Timothy was a Gentile, so it doesn't make sense that he would call them brethren in, the, in, the, in a natural sense. For me, it's clear. I don't care what somebody else thinks. I don't care what somebody else argues about it. I've considered the options. I think it's Paul. Now, if it is Paul... It makes more sense to me because now I can judge Paul's life by the things that he's teaching. It makes a whole lot more sense to me to see the other things that Paul wrote and the other letters that Paul wrote because now I understand where he's coming from. He gives us a lot more detail about this. 
He's the one that gives us all the detail about Jesus being our high priest. Peter didn't tell us anything about that. What does that mean? That means there are things for us to understand more clearly about who Jesus is and what he's doing for us now when we understand the training and the teaching that Paul had. I'm glad I don't have to go back and learn all the Old Testament. I've had some people say, you know, Pastor Mike, you, some have said, you seem to know a lot about the Old Testament. And I laugh at that. I don't know anything about the Old Testament. I have other people that say, you don't seem to know anything about the Old Testament. I think, well, I'm sorry that it shows up. I'm glad I don't have to know the Old Testament. That's good to, good to have some things to compare to. But knowing the Old Testament is not necessary. But Paul did. And he gives us the benefit of his teaching and his training. You know, if I go to a lawyer, I don't want to know everything the lawyer knows. I just want to know what, he need, what he's got, the information he's got that pertains to my situation. I want the benefit of his training. I don't want to get the training. In the same way, I don't want to know everything that Paul knew. I don't need to know that because a lot of what he knew didn't have relevance to the New Testament, the New Covenant. But he seemed to know some things about Jesus and the work of the high priest that nobody else gives us information about. Now, folks, I want you to notice again verse 17. It says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. In other words, Jesus was in on the plan. He was accepting of the plan. He was in agreement with the plan. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. There are two things that Paul identifies more strongly in the book of Hebrews about Jesus being a high priest than any other thing. The first is mercy. The second is great. Now the reason that he talks about great is identified over in, uh, I think it's the fifth chapter. Uh, well, is it the fifth, cha- fifth chapter? Let me look real quickly. No, it's the seventh chapter. He talks in the seventh chapter about how Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he talks about how great Melchizedek was. He said, consider what a great man Melchizedek was that even Abraham would pay tithes to him. Now he goes on to say that Jesus is the one that in heaven receives our tithes. In other words, he uses Melchizedek as an example of the greatness that we should recognize and respect in Jesus as being our high priest. Folks, he's trying to get something across to us, and that is this. He's trying to show us that when we act in in accordance with the Word, when we bring our tithes into the storehouse, this should not just be something that we're doing as a a matter of a rule or a ritual or, well, you know, I sure hope this works, but rather as an, uh, an, an affirmation, an act of faith on our part of the greatness of Jesus. And that's where the blessings come in. So he talks about Jesus being a merciful high priest, and he talks about him being a great high priest. Now turn back with me to, did I tell you to do this? Isaiah chapter 30? Okay, Isaiah chapter 30. Let me show you something about that. Let me show you something the Bible says about Jesus being our merciful high priest. I almost feel like I need to apologize this morning because I don't have a message Some people might think that's the case all the time. I don't know. But uh, uh, what I mean by that is I've been studying a lot and, and, and meditating and reminding myself of some things that the Bible says about Jesus as our high priest. And I don't have a specific message or sermon to bring to you this morning. I've just got this whole big thing. It's like it's this big. And what do I pick out of to say? And as a result, I, I can already tell, I, I feel at least like I'm jumping back and forth to several different things. 
I don't want to do that. I want to try to keep it nice and neat. I like to tie things up in a nice, neat little package. It doesn't always work that way, but that's my preference. So forgive me if I jump around. I'll try to get back on the track, okay? Isaiah chapter 30. Let me show you something that the Bible says prophesied about Jesus. It says, verse 18, And therefore will the Lord wait that He may be gracious unto you. Now the wait has to do with God not showing judgment. It's saying very specifically, you read the whole context, we won't take time to do it, but if you read the context, you'd find out that it's saying God doesn't lower the boom. He could. He has a right to. But God does not exact judgment. He doesn't drop the hammer every time that He has the right to. This is what it's talking about, God in His attitude toward mankind. And the Lord will therefore wait that He may be gracious unto you. And therefore, speaking of Jesus, and therefore will He be exalted. Now, when was Jesus exalted? Well, Philippians chapter 2 says, after death, after Jesus was obedient to the death on the cross, it says, wherefore has God highly exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name? So the exaltation of Jesus happened after His resurrection when He was raised to sit at the right hand of God the Father. So we know now, they may not have known then, but we know now what this is referring to. Therefore will the Lord wait that He may be gracious unto you, and He, Jesus, will be exalted. Why? That He may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for Him. Now here's what it's saying about God. Folks, you need to understand, God is a God of justice, and that means judgment is coming. God operates this way. He will be good, and He will be good, and He will be good some more, and good some more, and good some more. But there comes a point, if you force God into a corner, then judgment's all that's left. And folks, God's judgment is kind of a scorched earth policy. He gives you every opportunity... Every opportunity until time's up. And then once time's up, it's like, okay, I tried. I gave you every chance. Never wanted this for you. Never planned this for you. But you through your choice or lack of choice for Jesus. See, sin is the, sin and spiritual death is the default setting for mankind. In order to change that, you have to actively make a choice for Jesus. So some people just through ignorance and failing to choose for Jesus. Judgment is the only option for them. Others through rebellion. They know better, but they still choose to go their own way. Then judgment's the only option for them. That's what this is saying about God. God's saying, I wait and wait and wait. I'll put it off. I'll delay. I'll give you every opportunity. I'll even exalt my son Jesus that he may show mercy. But judgment's coming. And when that day of judgment comes, there's nobody anywhere under any circumstance that will be able to look God in the face and say, you didn't give me a fair shake. Because whether you or I know what somebody else's fair shake is, God's dealing with them individually. See, we see situations and we think, well, I don't understand that. Well, that's because you're not involved in everything that's going on. We see that a lot of times with sickness. I got a, an email from uh, a dear lady this, uh, this week and, and uh, she's got a cousin that she was believing God for for her healing. She's believing for her own healing and she was believing for her cousin as well and her cousin didn't make it. And, and she was all distraught. Pastor Mike, tell me why I don't understand if it doesn't work for him. Why, how can I expect it to work for me kind of thing? And, and, and what do we do? 
Well, you don't know what's going on on the inside of somebody else. You never know. You never know what choices somebody else makes. Yeah, but they were making the right confession. But were they making it from their heart? How would you know that? I've seen people making the right confession, but they're making it out of their head. It didn't bring them any results. I've seen people make the right confession about getting saved out of their head, and it didn't change their life. I've seen people do what other people told them to do, but it all was here. They didn't believe in their heart. The Bible says the key to believing, the key to salvation is believe in your heart and say with your mouth. If you're just saying out of your head or saying from your mouth, from your head, from your, your mental understanding or lack thereof, and it's not attached to something that you believe in your heart, it's not going to do any good. So nobody will be able to say to the Lord, you didn't do right by me. Nobody. God exalted Jesus that he might show mercy. Now, what does that mean? Well, the modern day church will tell you, oh yes, God is merciful to forgive sins. No matter what you've done, God's mercy is extended to you for forgiveness of sins. But is that all it means? Is that all mercy means? It may be all that it means to you. It may be all that it means to someone who that's all they've ever heard. But is that all that God meant when he said the Lord will show you mercy? Turn with me over to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Jesus is entering into his earthly ministry that he described the purpose of was to reveal the Father to us. He wound up telling us, he that has seen me, speaking of himself, he said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So we know that that's what his purpose was, was to reveal the Father to us. Well, let's see what Jesus said about this. Mark chapter 1. Let's start reading in verse 40, and it says, And there came a leper to Jesus, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If you will, thou canst make me clean. If you will, thou canst make me clean. I believe you can, I just don't know if you will. Folks, that's the condition of most of the modern day church today, where it comes to sickness. Oh, God can heal. Sure, God can do anything. All things are possible with God. Sure, of course. Who, what Christian would ever say, no, it's impossible for God to heal? Nobody's going to say that. So they're in the same boat as the, as the leper was. I believe you can. Folks, let me tell you something. Believing you can is easy. What he's not sure of, what the leper's not sure of, is the same thing that most of the church world nowadays is not sure of, and that is, will you? Now, in order to believe that God will, you've got to have some information. Just like you have the information that all things are possible with God, you're convinced God created the universe. God can do anything. Okay, you've got to have some information now about God's willingness. That's the whole reason Jesus said He came to the earth, was to show us that God is willing. To reveal not only God's power, but to reveal God's willingness. This guy says, I believe you can heal me, I just don't know if you will. Verse 41, And Jesus moved with compassion. Now folks, let me explain something to you about the Greek and Hebrew words compassion and mercy. They're both identically the same words. The word merciful in both the Greek and the Hebrew is the same word that's translated compassionate. They both mean exactly the same thing. Do you want to know what they mean? Those words, both mercy and compassion, mean this. It means to be full of eager yearning, to love tenderly. Now, what does that mean? Here it says Jesus was moved with compassion. What does that mean? That means Jesus was moved with 
with eager yearning. What does that mean? That means Jesus wanted to show this man not the power of God. He believed in the power of God. Jesus wanted to show him God's willingness to heal him to such a degree that he instantly reached forth and touched him and said, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. The man's leprosy was cleansed. Now what I want to show you is this. What I want you to understand is that in Jesus' day, there's no intelligent person that can argue this point. In Jesus' day, mercy included healing. Matthew chapter 20, two blind men are coming or are, are sitting by the wayside and Jesus and his company come down the road. And these two blind men called out and said, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Finally, Jesus stops, talks to them. He said, What will you that I do unto you? And they said, Lord, that we may receive our sight. And Jesus touched them, laid hands on them, and they received their sight. So in Jesus' day, mercy also meant healing. Now, I know the modern day church says that mercy is about forgiveness of sins. But in Jesus' day, Mercy included healing. Look with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Let's start reading in verse 13 here. It said, when Jesus heard of it, this was when they wanted to, to take Jesus and make Him a king by force. It says, when Jesus heard of that, He went somewhere else. He departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed Him on foot out of all the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion. Here's the word mercy. To be full of eager yearning, to love tenderly. He was moved with compassion. Now what did in Jesus' day, what did God's compassion move Jesus to do? What did God's tender love, what did Jesus' eager yearning move Him to do? And He healed their sick. So in Jesus' day, now I know the modern day church says otherwise, but in Jesus' day, mercy and compassion included healing. God's mercy provided healing for the sick. Nowadays, you'll hear people say, you got a lot of the churches that say, well, healing's been done away with. Healing's not for us today. Well, has mercy been done away with? Is mercy not for us today? Folks, let me explain something to you. The Bible says Jesus, the Bible clearly says Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible clearly says God said it himself personally. He said, I am God, I change not. If, if the mercy of God has been modified or altered from Jesus' day when it included healing, to today, when it doesn't include healing, why doesn't the Bible tell us so? We've got a lot of preachers that will tell us so. Why doesn't the Bible say so? Why didn't the Bible say so? And besides that, you remember over in uh, John chapter 14, Jesus said, it is expedient. That means it's helpful, it's beneficial, it's profitable. It's expedient for you that I go away. It's better for you that I go away. Now, can I ask you a question? If mercy in Jesus' day included healing, but now mercy only includes forgiveness of sins, would it be better for the sick? Today, instead of Jesus' day? 
I got to tell you, if I was sick in body, if I was leper, if I was a leper, if I was a cripple or something like that, and I heard Jesus say those things, I'd say, well, Jesus, if it's all the same to you, I'd rather live while you're here because I can get healed. Yet Jesus said, it's better for you. Why would it be better except that in the day following Jesus' resurrection, you've got at least the same mercy in operation? Let me show you something else about mercy. We're right here in Matthew chapter 14. Look at chapter 15. Let me show you what else Jesus said about mercy, or the Bible tells about mercy. Jesus has a, has a uh, well, better start in verse 29 rather than just refer to it. Let me read it. It said, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak and the maimed to walk to be whole and the lame to walk and the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. Now, folks, stop for a minute and think about what it's telling us happened. You've got not only people that are sick being healed, people that are crippled that are walking, you've got people that are missing body parts that are being replaced. And the Bible does not give us any wow factor associated with that. The Bible doesn't say, and Jesus did his regular works of healing the sick and even causing the lame lame to walk, but this time, even the maimed were made whole. Nope. The Bible talks about them as one and the same things. Now, folks, I'm not saying it's just as easy for me, but I'm telling you it's just as easy for God to replace a body part as it is to heal a body. I'm glad that responsibility is not on me. How about you? But that's what the Bible says. It doesn't say, and they built a memorial here because here's where somebody's body part was replaced. That's what they do nowadays. Can you imagine if a body part was replaced nowadays, what somebody's newsletter would be from that point forward? My goodness, you talk about a fundraising tool. (laughs) Then Jesus, after he's healed the sick, after he's caused the lame to walk, after he's replaced body parts, then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Well, duh. (laughs) Really? (laughs) No joke, Jesus? That would kind of be self-evident as the results they've already gotten, wouldn't it? No, he's talking about something else now. He said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Now, folks, let me tell you something. Let me, just a real side note here, just, just real quickly. I won't take any time on this. Let me point something out that the Bible seems to connect. When these guys put spiritual things above their physical well-being, they got miraculous results. Nowadays, you get people complaining if you preach over an hour. Nowadays, people are looking at their watch, counting the moments until they can put their time in and go on to something else. Christians nowadays go to church once a month and think they've done something for God. 
But you get a situation where people are taking this attitude, where they're willing to go out into the wilderness, follow somebody. There is no In-N-Out burger on the corner. There is no place for them to get food. They know when they're going out there. I mean, everybody had to plan like that. You took a lunch. Well, they've been out there three days and nights. Lunch is gone. But they didn't leave. When their provisions ran out, they didn't leave. And folks, I want you to understand something else too. Jesus didn't move instantly when their stuff ran out. Because a lot of times, that's the time where you see, how committed are we to these things? Nowhere does the Bible say you will never be uncomfortable because God is on your side. But it does say you'll never go under. You stick with Him, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it looks like, oh boy, (laughs) we've gone too far here. We took this a little bit too far. That's when God comes through with spectacular things. Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude because they've been with me now for three days and they don't have anything to eat. And if I sent them away now, they'd all pass out on the way. Well, that'd be a mess on the roads. We can't do that. So what does Jesus do? He answers his disciples, first of all. The disciples are thinking naturally, understandably. So they said, whence, whence means where, He said, where should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? I want you to notice that they do not. Their first question is not, where would we get the money to buy it? Their first question is, who's got this kind of bread for us to get? There's nowhere around. The bakery's a long way off from here. And Jesus said unto them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down, and he took the seven loaves and fishes and gave thanks and break them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. Now, folks, let me show you something. When God moves in on the scene, when God's compassion makes provision, there's extra. I like the fact that it does not say, and they left the extra sitting on the ground. Because God doesn't waste. You need to understand something. God is a God of abundance. His compassion will provide for you abundantly. But He's not a waster. What do you think they did with the seven baskets full of stuff that left over? Well, everybody's full. What are they going to do with it? Well, they're either going to take it for additional provision, or they're going to give it to the poor. I love the fact that every time Jesus multiplied loaves and fishes, every time He supernaturally provided for people, it tells us that He did something with the leftovers. Number one, that tells us there was plenty of leftovers. Number two, it shows us that God does not bless wasting. A lot of people have the idea that prosperity is all about just throwing money around and wasting it and money to burn and all that kind of stuff. That is ridiculous. God doesn't want you to have money to waste on you. He doesn't want you to have money to waste on things. He wants you to have an abundance and plenty left over so that you can use it to be a blessing to other people. Prosperity without a purpose is greed. But make no mistake about it, the compassion of the Lord will lead you into prosperity. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. 
In Jesus' day, compassion meant provision. Mercy meant provision. I know the modern day church says it doesn't now. But in Jesus' day, you know, the day where he said, he that's seen me has seen the Father, the Father that never changes. In Jesus' day, mercy meant healing. Mercy meant provision. Now, folks, I'm not in any way trying to take away from the forgiveness of sins. Without the forgiveness of sins, nothing else matters. But you need to understand, Jesus did not just die for your sins to be forgiven. Jesus died to redeem you from the curse of the law. And that curse of the law was threefold. It was spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. Now, for someone, anyone in the modern-day church, to say that the mercy of God now, today, has been modified to be something other than what it was in Jesus' day is to add to the Scripture, or in my, in my opinion, take away from it. Nobody has that right. Nobody has that right. I don't care how famous a preacher they are. Nobody has a right to say that the mercy of God has been modified. And in Jesus' day, mercy included healing and provision. Turn with me to Psalm 145, I think it is. Psalm 145. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Now, the word gracious means disposed to show favors. It literally is telling us, the language, the interpretation, everything is telling us, God has a tendency to show favors to people. What does that mean? That means you don't have to talk Him into being good to you. That means you don't have to beg Him to do something for you. He is disposed to show favors. It is God's nature to do good and give. Can I tell you something? If I could convince you, if if something could just happen, something fall from heaven, and, and, and whatever it is, If you and I, every one of us, would be convinced of God's mercy, His love, His eager yearning toward us, His desire for our well-being more than our desire to be well in any and every area, if we could have more faith in His mercy than we have in His power, and, second part of that, put ourselves in a position where He doesn't have to violate His word to show mercy to us, we'd be shocked how good He is. The Bible says that after we get to heaven, it's going to take ages for God to show you His goodness. Stop and think about what that means. The age of man has been 6,000 years. What other ages does He mean? I'm asking a question. I don't have the answer. This is not... You know, okay, I want you to think, now I'll tell you. I have no idea. What comes after when we get to heaven? I don't know, but the Bible says that it will take ages for Him to show you His goodness. Ages. And remember, in heaven there's no time. How do you even count ages? (laughs) But what do we magnify? We magnify His power. 
Do you realize that nobody that ever came to Jesus to receive healing, did Jesus ever magnify the power to do it? Instead, Jesus magnifies the mercy of God and He magnifies the faith of the individual. Church world says Jesus healed to prove that He was the Son of God. Find me anybody He told that to. You got four Gospels. You got four books to look through. Show me anybody that Jesus said, I'm healing you to prove that I'm the Son of God. You can't find it. But you can find numerous cases where he says, where the Bible says he was moved with compassion to do it. Mark chapter 5 tells us a story about the madman from Gadara. You remember him? The Bible says this, he, this guy was something. He was so demon-possessed, it said they tried to hold him with chains and he'd break the chains in two. I mean, he had Samson-like strength. Folks, everything supernatural is not from God. He had supernatural strength, but it was of the devil. He was living out into the, in the tombs, cutting himself with stones, crying out. Man, I mean, he lived in a place where nobody would even go to. This guy was so crazy. Jesus comes up on him, and the man falls down at his feet and begins to worship Jesus. Jesus cast the devil out of the guy. You remember the story? How he cast the devil, uh, told the legion of devils to go into the swine that were, going, uh, were hanging out nearby? Can I ask you a question? What? Jew is a pig farmer. <laughs> You're not going to find one. You've got somebody, obviously a Gentile, obviously somebody that's not a Jew. You've got somebody that's operating contrary to the law of Moses within the limits of Israel, the boundaries of Israel. Now, they were under Roman rule, so that's probably the reason why. And so anyway, Jesus cast the devils out and they went into the swine. And even pigs have got too much sense to hang around with the devil. They ran off in the cliff and drowned themselves. Remember what Jesus told the guy? The guy came back to Jesus. It said people came out from the city. This part just amazes me about the story. They came out from the city. Now they see the guy wearing clothes. Before then, he was out there running around naked. Now they see him in his right mind. They see him, he's, he's behaving normally, he's in his right mind, he's clothed, he looks normal, and that's when people said, Jesus, you're going to have to leave this place. <laughs> Folks, the world doesn't like you when you look right with God. But the guy, the guy, when Jesus starts to leave, the guy says, let me come with you. And Jesus says, no, no, you've got another job to do. He said, go back and tell those that you know, how the Lord has had compassion on you. So in Jesus' day, the compassion of the Lord meant deliverance from the bondage of the enemy. I know, none of that stuff works today. But in Jesus' day, mercy included deliverance. Now the Bible tells us, if you read the story a little bit further, this was in the area of Decapolis. Decapolis means ten cities. These, this was in the region where the ten Roman cities were built by the, the, the emperor, the Caesars. And, and that's probably why the swine were in the area because they were not under, under uh, Jewish control in any way whatsoever. Jesus very, very... He, went, he walked through Decapolis, but he'd never minister into the cities. Now, the Bible tells us that after this guy went home and began to publish, it literally says, and when he published the things that the Lord had done for him and how the Lord had had compassion on him, then it says next time Jesus came through there, Jesus had a revival like you wouldn't believe. He had healings and things taking place as a result of one man's 
publishing. I don't think that literally means publishing like we know of today. But one man's testimony, we might say, of the Lord's compassion to deliver him caused great multitudes to experience the power and the mercy of God. Let's keep looking at Psalm 145. Verse 8 again, the Lord is gracious. That means He's disposed to show favors. He's already on your side. His tendency is to be good to you. You don't have to talk Him out of something. You don't have to make a deal with Him. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. What does it mean if you're full of something? I know a lot of people that are full of something. Some of those are preachers. No, but in a general sense, if something is full of something, that means there's no room for anything else, doesn't it? He's full of compassion. He's full of eager yearning. That means He wants more for you than you want for you. And He loves you tenderly. He's not against you. He's not looking for where you've done wrong. Quit trying to measure up to some standard that the church sets and realize God's already on your side. He's your Father. You don't have to do anything for Him to love you. You're in His family. So many of us live under that rules thing. Well, Lord, you know my heart is toward you. You know I'd do anything for you, but yeah, I did miss it, you know. So, okay, I understand if you don't want to be good. Too many of us have that kind of attitude. That's not what the Bible says. And what a treasure we pass up when we use our own thinking rather than what the Bible says. Let me try to get through verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's slow to anger. Oh, thank God. He's slow to anger. I don't know about you, but I'd have been toast a long time ago if he wasn't slow to anger. <laughs> He's slow to anger and of great mercy. What is great mercy? We already know what mercy means. It means to be full of eager yearning. It means to love tenderly. What does great eager yearning mean? What does great tender love mean? It means it's beyond something that we would expect it to be. Verse 9. The Lord is good to some. You know, the ones that live right. The ones that do all the right stuff. Folks, let me tell you something. The people that you think are living right are having the same issues that you have. Maybe not the same areas, but everybody has something It's amazing. I, I may be the world's worst at this. I think everybody else is perfect and I'm the only one messing up. Then I hear stuff that people do and I think, you got to be kidding. They did what? Biggest problem I have in counseling sessions is keep a straight face. <laughs> people tell me stuff and I want to go... I wish that were an exaggeration, but it is not. We better get back to the Bible here. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies. Here's, the one, here's really what I wanted you to see. And His tender mercies are over all of His works. His tender mercies are over all of His works. You know what the last part of verse 9 means? It means everything that God has ever done is because of His mercy. It means everything, every work 
that Jesus has ever done, ever performed, everything that God has ever done for you, every kindness, every, 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 anything that God has ever done in your life in any measure whatsoever was because of His mercy. How many of us have faith in His mercy? Micah chapter 7 verse 18, I believe it is, says that the Lord delights in mercy. We think He delights in our perfection. We think He delights when we do everything right. We find the Scriptures that say, the eyes of Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, I believe it is, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, seeking who He may show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward Him. We read that Scripture and we think, well, my heart's not perfect. I mean, I love God, but I've messed up. We miss the thing entirely. We miss it completely. We think that God's waiting for us to do everything just right and be everything that, that every Scripture tells us that we have to be. Never miss it. Never even... I mean, the thought of temptation. Huh? You're going to be kidding. We think that it's got to be just so and then maybe God will like us. But the Bible doesn't say God delights when we do everything right. It said God delights in mercy. God delights in mercy. The Lord is gracious. He's disposed to show favors. Now turn back with me to Hebrews. We'll close this up. Turn back with me to Hebrews. Let's read chapter 2 again, verse 17. And then I want you to see something else. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 again. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that or so that... He may be a, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Turn with me over to chapter 7. Chapter 7. Well, let me... Yeah, chapter 7. We'll just go there. Verse 22. By so much was Jesus... This is talking about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It says, by so much was Jesus made a surety, that means a guarantee or a guarantor of a better testament. Now, the Bible talks a lot about guarantors. The book of Proverbs talks a lot about it, but mostly on the negative side. It says, if you're a guarantee or a surety or a guarantor for your friend, in other words, if you've told someone, I'll make good on his debt, it tells you, get out of that as quick as you can. The Bible tells you not to be a surety for somebody else because you don't know what somebody else is going to do. And it goes so far as to say if the other guy, hearing of your kindness to make good on his debts, doesn't do right by his creditors, why should they come take away your stuff? So it's talking about somebody being a guarantee, somebody making taking an oath of some type to be a guarantee for somebody else. That's what the Bible says Jesus is for you. It says, Jesus is your guarantee. We're not supposed to be guarantees for other people. But the Bible says that Jesus is your guarantee. He's your surety. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. The word testament is the word covenant. Hebrews uh, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says, We have a better covenant or a better testament established upon better promises. Now that means that it's better for us now than it was when Jesus was here. Now, the part of the church world that tries to tell us that the healing and the provision and and all that other kind of stuff, deliverance and the other things that were mercies in Jesus' day, that's not for us today because now what we have is forgiveness of sins. 
Well, folks, that would be a different covenant. But why would it be a better covenant? Oh, it's better now because we can have eternal redemption and that's it. Well, they had the same promise of redemption. All they had to do was wait for Jesus to be raised from the dead. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it said He led captivity captive. That means all those that died under the old covenant, Jesus preached to them when He had taken the keys of hell and death and Satan. And then they went to heaven. So if they had the promise of redemption, we have the reality of redemption. Sure, the reality is better. But we wind up in the same place with the same stuff. So how could what we have be a better covenant if it has less provision for the physical body, if it has less provision in material things, if it has less deliverance? How in the world could God get by with saying it's a better covenant established upon better promise? By the way, find me anything that says we've got two different covenants. The Bible says the blessing of Abraham is yours now. The blessing of Abraham was the first covenant. Well, what makes the second covenant? The second covenant just means the first one's been fulfilled. It's come to an end. So we don't have the rules and the rituals and the sacrifices and all that stuff to do with. But it's still the same covenant. It's still the same result. We get the same blessing that Abraham had with the reality of being made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not really two covenants. It's the same covenant, just the first fulfilled, so that now the second is without man's work. Do you understand what I mean by that? Now, some people are going to take that and try to go theological on me and say, oh, that's heresy. Have you heard that? Pastor Mike Webb is saying that stuff, that there's not two covenants, there's just one. Well, show me the difference. I can show you from the book of Galatians where God preached Jesus to Abraham when he cut the covenant. So why would it be two? Why would they be separate covenants? It's just simply saying we've got a better covenant because now we don't have the Old Testament rituals. We don't have the keeping of the law to try to, to, to hang on to and take care of and all that kind of stuff. Our law is the law of love because we've already been made righteous. They were looking for righteousness. We've got it. Well, where did the mercy of God change? Show me anywhere that Jesus said, now I'm coming so you can be made righteous, so you can have eternal redemption. But, but you know that mercy? <laughs> no. Used to mean healing, used to mean provision, used to mean deliverance, but not anymore. Show me that. Nobody can. Well, then how do people get off by making those kind of statements? Where do people come up with modifying the mercy of God when their modification, what they're left with when they try to modify it, is less mercy when the Bible says Jesus was exalted, raised to the, king, to the right hand of God to show mercy? By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant or testament. And they truly were many priests. Now he's going to compare the Old Testament priests with, with Jesus. They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, Jesus, because he continueth ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Has an unchangeable priesthood. Now what does that unchangeable priesthood do? Verse 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. 
Now, folks, let me make one statement real quickly. A lot of people see the word intercession, they think prayer. If Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, that means everything's finished. He couldn't be seated if everything was done except his praying. If Jesus is is making intercession for you in the sense that he's praying for you, he wouldn't be seated at the right hand of the Father. He'd be kneeling there. The fact that he's seated, the Bible tells us specifically, means that everything is finished. Not everything except his prayer is finished. Not most everything. Everything is finished. So intercession here cannot mean prayer. What does it mean? It means he has a fixed position at the right hand of God that guarantees your place in him. His intercession is that he joined. Intercession is to join two two different things. Intercession means he joined God and man with his presence. He has an unchangeable priesthood. He's right there as the proof that you've been made righteous and that the mercy of God is due you. What will that produce? He will save you to the uttermost. Now, some people with a religious idea, they'll look at that and they'll say, okay, well, that just means forgiveness of sins. Folks, your sins have already been forgiven. You've been made righteous to the uttermost. It can't just mean righteousness. When this is talking about saving you to the uttermost, it means to to save you in every way. The word uttermost means absolute. It means completion. That means he'll save you in the area of sickness. That means Jesus is your guarantee of being saved from sickness. That means Jesus is your guarantee of being saved from poverty. That means Jesus is your guarantee for being saved from the bondage of the devil. Oh, Pastor Mike, I wish I could believe that would be true. I I, I wish I could believe that. You can. That's exactly what it means. So what's our job? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, wherefore, because these things are true. Let me let you get there. I want you to see it for yourself. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Christ Jesus. The word profession is the word confession. It means to say the same thing. How do you take advantage of this being saved to the uttermost? How do you take advantage of being saved from sickness? How do you take advantage of being saved from poverty? How do you take advantage of being saved from the bondage of the devil? By your profession. Remember what Paul said about a high priest? A high priest offers things to God on behalf of the people. What does Jesus have to offer for you? One thing, your confession. Your confession. Your confession is the act of your will to change the settings in your life. If the setting of your life is set on sickness, you change it through your confession that Jesus is your high priest, that by the sacrifice of his own self and the shedding of his own blood, by his stripes you were healed. If the setting in your life is poverty, you change that setting by the profession or the confession of your mouth. You say, Jesus, by the sacrifice of his blood, was chastised for my peace. That word peace in the Old Testament is translated prosperity too. He took punishment upon himself that I might be prosperous. In other words, Redeemed from the curse of poverty. If the setting in your life is set on bondage to the enemy, you change that through your confession. You begin to say, Jesus delivered me from the power of death by being my substitute. Your profession is that which Jesus offers to God on your behalf. And He's the guarantee that it, makes, that it comes to pass.
Why? Because he was raised to show you mercy. He was raised to show mercy. I want to encourage you to do something, folks. I want to encourage you to start meditating on and calling on the mercy of God. You've wanted things your way long enough. It's time for you to let God have things His way. And He delights in mercy. Okay, Lord. You delight in mercy. I call out for mercy. People that did that in Jesus' day got great stuff. They received their healing. They received provision. They received deliverance. God never changes, folks. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God to save you in every area of your life. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. That means free completely in every area. Jesus is your high priest of mercy. He's there to show you mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your great mercy. We focus so much on your justice. We focus so much on your power. We focus so much on even your holiness. And all those things are true and all those things are right. Father, you delight in mercy. You delight in mercy. You're disposed to show favors. It is your tendency to be gracious and favor us. We don't have to talk you into anything. You're good to all. Your tender mercies are over all of your works. Thank you, Father, that you are slow to anger and of great mercy. Now, Father, we pray together. I pray for the mercy of God upon each and every one of us. I pray for the mercy of forgiveness. I pray for the mercy of healing. I pray for the mercy of provision. I pray for the mercy of deliverance from every part of the devil's work in our lives. Father, we throw ourselves upon your mercy. But we do so in faith. We confess. We say with our mouths what your word says. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we're healed. We confess, therefore, Father, we declare by faith in your word, that we are free. Say this after me. We declare in Jesus' name, according to the word of God, that we were made righteous by the blood of Jesus. The chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus. So we're redeemed from the curse of poverty. And by His stripes, we were healed. So we're redeemed from the curse of sickness. We declare, according to the mercies of God, that we are free from every hold of the enemy. We are free from everything that would bind us. We are free, alive unto God. In Jesus' name. Folks, let me tell you one of the, make just another couple of comments real quickly before I let you go. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 says, God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He's the Father of mercies, not the Father of justice. 
He's the Father of mercies. The Father of mercies. When Paul, beseeching us to do the things that God most wants us to do, to present our bodies a living sacrifice and to renew our minds to the Word, he besought us by the mercies of God. Not by holiness, not by righteousness, not by power, not by judgment or justice or any of those other things. He magnified, when he was inspired by the Holy Ghost, he magnified the mercies of God. I want to challenge you to begin to magnify the mercies of God in your life. Not his power, but his mercy. Everything he gave us about his word is so that we would understand that he's a merciful God. Everything he gave us about knowledge, to to, to build us in knowledge of Jesus and what he did for us, is so we would understand the mercy of God. Everything. Begin to focus on and major on the mercy of God. And put yourself in a position where God doesn't have to violate his word to get to you. See, that's where so much of the church world is. They want God to do things for them, but they put themselves in a position where he'd have to violate his word to do it. You put yourself in a position where he doesn't have to violate his word and watch his mercies flow towards you. I really have a sense in my heart that 2012 is going to be a year of God's mercy for us. Amen. Well, let's all stand together. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands and thank him for being merciful to us. We love you, Father. Thank you that you are the Father of mercies. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a merciful and faithful high priest. Thank you, Lord, that you are gracious, disposed to show favors unto us, full of compassion. (laughs) Your tender mercies are over all of your works, and you're good to all. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your mercy. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being a part of our family. Again, we hope you can be with us for the Christmas services next week. If not, let me just say Merry Christmas to you. Hope that it's a great Christmas season, the best one you've ever had. Amen.